Welcome to Shore Words, the ASPM podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shore Words, and each month I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writings, with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspire their chosen paths. Today is my great pleasure to talk with Vince Bicer about his career, his writing, and sand. We're here at the Berkeley Book Festival. It's been wonderful listening to you talk about your book and getting to know you a little bit better. What's your elevator pitch for your book? Excellent question. Here it is. Ready? My book is about the most important solid substance on the planet, the literal foundation of modern civilization. It's about sand. Sand? Why sand? Who cares about sand? Well, sand turns out to be the thing that modern cities are made out of. It's what concrete is made out of, glass, silicon chips that power your computers, all those things are made out of sand. In other words, no sand, no modern civilization. And guess what? We are starting to run out. Boom, that's the pitch. Cool. So you started with Middle Eastern studies. Then you went to many other things, and now you're back in sand, which might evoke the desert. How did that come about? How did you get to sand as your current topic, not du jour, but to life? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. So, yeah, I mean, I got my degree in Middle Eastern studies. That was a very long time ago. Uh, I, the short answer is I'm a journalist. Um, I started my career in the Middle East doing reporting on the first intifada in Israel and Palestine and many, many, many other stories in many, many, many other places. But in a nutshell, you know, the consonant is I've always been a journalist. I'm always, uh, and I've been a freelancer for most of my career. So I'm always hustling for a good story. You know, I'm always just looking for something interesting and new, especially as a freelancer, you got to find stories that aren't being covered so much by the mainstream media, by the, all the staff writers. And uh, so I read a lot of kind of off the beaten path kind of publications and websites. And I just ran across this story a few years ago now about uh, the murder of a farmer in India. Um, with And it was a murder with a motive that just struck me as completely bizarre. He was killed over sand. And I thought, what? Sand? Like, what? who cares about sand? It seems like the most trivial thing in the world, right? Why would anybody care enough to kill somebody over sand? So uh, it was such a weird and fascinating story. I got Wired magazine to send me over to India to get to the bottom of it and come to find out this particular guy, whose name was Paliram Chohan, uh, was not the first, far from the first person to be murdered over sand. Hundreds of people have been killed over sand in recent years. And the reason is, like I said, it's, it is literally the thing that our cities are made out of. It's an incredibly important natural resource. And we are using so much of it, supplies are getting so short that uh, organized crime has actually gotten into the business and there's a black market in sand. So come to find out that uh, Paliram Chohan was far from the only person who's been killed over sand. Hundreds of people have been murdered over sand in the last few years and the reason is because we are using it at such an incredible rate to build cities in our modern world, 
that organized crime has actually gotten into the racket, and there's a black market in sand uh, run by organized criminals, and they do what organized crime does everywhere. They pay off, uh, least they pay off government officials to leave them alone. If you really get in their way, they will kill you. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of the sand mafia in India, and it's just, in the U.S., it seems a little bit implausible, but it's true. I mean, it's, it's scary that that's the case. So in reading your book, I was impressed by the number of things that are made with sand. I mean, things that don't even seem to have a, a substance that looks sand-like. The one that really struck me was asphalt. And I was in a meeting a couple months ago where somebody was mentioning how all the sand out of San Francisco Bay is being used. And one of the, one of the sources, they, or one of the uses they mentioned was that sand there is used for asphalt. And having read your book, I went, oh, of course I know that. But several people in the, in the group kind of went, asphalt? Yeah. So what surprised you about the way sand is being used? So I think one of the biggest surprises to me was, uh, was just concrete, right? Because I had just literally never, I'd never really thought about concrete at all. It's, just, it's like the air that we breathe, right? It's all around us all the time in our cities. And I had never stopped to think like, what is concrete made of and where do we get the things that it's made of? And come to find out, it's basically just sand and gravel glued together, right? And, but then when you stop and look around, any city, anywhere in the world, and you look at the asphalt beneath your feet, asphalt is also just sand and gravel glued together, the buildings around you, you know, shopping malls, apartment blocks, office towers, they're all made out of concrete, thousands, millions of tons of concrete. When you stop to think, well, that the substance of that has to come from somewhere to realize like that that substance is sand and it has to come from somewhere and that exacts a cost. There's an environmental cost to extracting that stuff. That was just something that had never crossed my mind before. And, uh, and it makes me look at every concrete structure differently. And a lot of the American Shore, Shoreline Podcast Network audience were beach people. And so we think of beaches as being a source of sand. We think of the, the reason people go to the coast is for the sand that's there and recognize that a lot of our beaches are nourished. But that seems a, a fair cost for the beach experience. A lot of coastal communities find that they don't have a beach. They're not going to have the tourism that they thought about. You mentioned earlier today that we call the city Miami Beach. We don't call it Miami. There are lots of places throughout California that are Huntington Beach, different places with beach in their names. So, I mean, beaches seem like they were formed originally through sand, and now we're having to create some of that sand, bring it there artificially. Um, Absolutely. You, you well, not only that, but a lot of the most famous beaches in this country and around the world are completely artificial creations, right? Miami Beach is a 100% man-made construct. It was just swamp until developers dredged up millions of tons of sand from the, from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and dumped it along the shoreline to create a beach. So, uh, you know, at Waikiki Beach, same thing. It was just a very narrow little sandy strip that was artificially turned into a big, plush, beautiful beach that it is today. 
And of course, a lot of those artificial beaches as well as the natural beaches are disappearing. And the only reason that they're still with us is because we are artificially nourishing them, as they call it. We're, we're bringing in sand from somewhere else, dumping it on the coast to maintain a beach there. But there's nothing natural about them. That's true. Of course, in California, a lot of the beaches that are being nourished, that nourishment is coming from the harbors and the ports and navigation channels that have already intercepted that sand that would have been coming down coast anyway. But certainly probably the biggest nourishment project in California was when they put over 335 million cubic yards of sand on the Santa Monica Bay beaches. There was placed there purely as a byproduct of all the construction that was going on. You excavate sand out of a dune, where do you put it? The closest place nearby would be right along the shoreline. But certainly a lot of people are concerned now about where our beaches are going to be in the future. Will we have beaches? And somehow it seems like from your book we realize we're in competition with construction companies, with all the Silicon Valley chip manufacturers, with just a huge amount of other demands on sand. Asphalt, nonetheless, plus concrete. Well, I'll tell you, for beaches specifically, it's not, the, the biggest worry isn't, in my mind, the biggest worry isn't finding, isn't having to compete with the construction industry to get sand to dump on them. The biggest worry is the things that we're doing to block the natural accumulation of sand, right? So like in the normal course of things, Naturally occurring beaches are fed by two things. They're fed by rivers bringing sand down from the mountains, and they're fed by currents bringing sand down along the shore. And we human beings are interfering with both of those processes in a big way. We're building dams along the rivers that block the flow of sediment. We're also scooping out, mining a lot of the sand from the rivers. So that really reduces the, the inflow of sand from the rivers. And then along the coast, we've built up so many marinas and jetties and everything else that it blocks that flow of sand. Um, and in some places, this is getting really catastrophic. Like the Mekong Delta in Vietnam is disappearing, it's shrinking at the rate of a, about a football field and a half every single day. It's, yeah. Basically, it's, it's colossal. Yeah, and the Mekong Delta is it's the source of uh, something like half of all the rice that feeds Southeast Asia. It's an incredibly important agricultural region. But because of mining, or dams and sand mining along the Mekong, the amount of sand coming into the delta has just been completely, it's a fraction of what it used to be. So it's a big problem. The good news is, in some places at least, we're starting to wake up to that fact. So like here in California, and I know in Washington State, and probably other places, people are starting to realize that. And actually some of the dams that were killing beaches uh, have been destroyed in the last like 10 years or so. They've demolished some of those dams to allow the natural sediment to come through again. Like there's a beach in Washington where basically the, there used to be a lot of uh, mussels that lived on the beach that were basically almost wiped out because they built dams along the river. They finally figured that out, destroyed the dams, and now those mussel populations are coming back. Is that the Owa Dam or some of the others? Could be, I'm forgetting the name. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, it is good that we're starting to put some of those natural processes back into the system. And interesting that it was the concrete and the dams that enabled us to stop the sand from getting down to the beaches to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Sand versus sand. Right. 
one of the, the, the things that came through your book and, and to me was sort of the number of situations where we have almost like this Escher situation of a hand drawing, a hand drawing, a hand of mining sand to purify sand to get better sand, the whole silicon chip industry where you're taking fairly pure sand, making it super, super pure, turning it into this sand crucible in which you can then bake sand, cook sand together to make it even purer still. Yeah. yeah, it just seems like we've, as humans, we've come along with so many amazing ways of, of dealing with these situations. And again, so what was, I mean, that, that just shocked me that we use crucibles made out of pure sand to make even more pure sand to make the chips for our, our computers and our cell phones. Yeah. What what blew you away in the whole sand world that you? Well, I think I mean what what you're saying is really right. There's a way in which the more sand we use, it just leads to more sand being used, right? Like one thing that I always think about is the Boulder Dam, right? So we built the Boulder Dam back in the '30s uh, uh, in Nevada and created Lake Mead. So that was first of all that was one of the biggest deployments of concrete ever in human history, just millions and millions of tons of concrete went into building the Boulder Dam. It used to be called the Hoover Dam, now the Boulder Dam. Um, and of course, again, concrete is mostly sand, right? So by using those millions of tons of concrete, they created Lake Mead. They created this giant electrical reservoir, or water reservoir uh, that's also used to create electric power. Thanks to that reservoir, that because there's all that water and all that power available now, that led directly to the creation of all these desert cities like Las Vegas, Phoenix, that couldn't exist in the desert otherwise, right? You need a lot of water, you need a lot of power. And those cities, again, are made of sand. So by using these millions of tons of sand to build the dam, that creates the conditions whereby we can use millions more tons of sand to build the highways and the apartments and everything else that goes into making Tucson and Phoenix and Las Vegas. And of course, the bigger that those, the more successful those cities are, the more people they attract, that in turn brings more people. The more people that come in, the more sand we have to use to build them housing, to build them offices to work in, and malls to shop in, and freeways to drive in. So there's definitely a way that it, it builds on itself. The more that we use sand, the more that it leads us to use ever more sand. So one thing I think maybe folks who are familiar with beach sands and beach areas don't recognize is what you pointed out in your talk today, that, that the sand that all of these desert areas are, are using to build concrete and to build their roads and stuff, it's not the sand they're built on. Do you want to talk about desert sand versus commercial industrial sure, sand? Sure, absolutely. So people always ask, you know, how can we possibly be running out of sand? You know, something like a quarter of the whole world is desert. And the sad answer is all of that desert sand is pretty much useless to us, right? So the, the number one thing we use sand for is concrete by far. And desert sand, the grains are just the wrong shape for making concrete. Desert sand has been eroded by wind over thousands and millions of years. And it tends to be the grains, the individual grains tend to be much more rounded and smooth and they just don't lock together the way that you need them to to make concrete. Whereas if you look at the sand that you find on the bottom of rivers or the bottom of lakes, it's much more angular. 
So it's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of marbles as opposed to out of a stack of little bricks. Those desert sand grains just don't lock together the way that you need them to. So all that desert sand, pretty much useless to us. It's just so incredible because we think of sand to sand to sand, and yet the other thing I thought was so wonderful in your book is you talk about the army of sand and then the special delta forces and the different uh, specialized types of sand that we use, like the sand you get out of pegmatite that you use to get then the, the high-quality high silica sands for our computer chips. And many of the folks who go to the beach probably are just happy there's any sand there these days. And some of the desert sand might be fine for beaches if it could withstand all the wind forces that are there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to use sand for desert sand for beach nourishment, but the other big problem with desert sand is, well, the other, the big problem with sand is it's very heavy. Like a square meter or a cubic meter of sand weighs more than a ton. So anytime, as soon as you have to transport it any distance, the cost of it goes up really, really fast. So even if you could use desert sand for concrete, or if you decided, well, we could just, you know, schlep sand out from the desert to the beach, the cost of hauling it out there would just be astronomical, right? You need so many truckloads or trainloads of sand to make a difference, it would cost a fortune. So what do they do? I mean. So the, the main way that beaches are nourished today is they just suck up sand from the bottom of the ocean and shoot it up onto the, onto the shore. They just lay down these great big pipes with big uh, uh, centrifugal engines, suck up the sand, shoot it onto the coast, which works for a while, but eventually uh, everything is finite. So in southern Florida, for instance, in Miami-Dade County, where Miami is, in Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is, where a lot of these famous beaches are, they've been doing this for so long that they have literally run out of sand. There is no more sand on the ocean floor that they can access. Yeah. Um, in California, down in San Diego, for a little while, there was a program running where they were waste recycling, waste management, had given a contract to a company out in the desert and so they were using the desert area for landfill. They were actually excavating sand, putting it into the dump trucks, bringing it to San Diego beaches, dropping it on the beach, putting a different liner in, taking trash from San Diego, and dump, trucking it back out to the landfill. And it made it economical because the resource, the, the waste management portion of that allowed for the trucking, and the sand was just a byproduct of the trucking, and they were doing that. People were kind of happy with it for a while, but you're right, economically, it just wouldn't work on its own. Yeah, and I'll tell you, there's actually, there's a few other problems with, um, with beach nourishment. The thing is, you can't just grab any old sand and dump it on a beach for a few reasons. So, in places where it's a really touristy area, like Miami or like San Diego, um, people want, tourists want soft, fine, white sand, right? Like that's our idyllic image of the Paradise Beach, right? It's like the soft, white sand beach. And a lot of sands, you know, around the world, it just isn't. It's coarser, it's darker. So um, it just doesn't, like it's literally not allowed. Like in Florida, they have very specific rules about the color of the sand, the size of the sand grains, because they know 
sand is too rough, if it's too dark, the tourists will be bummed out and stop coming. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is uh, there is actually life on the sand itself, right? Most of it, sure. some of it we see, yeah. right? You know, little crabs and, and, and uh, shorebirds, stuff like that. Those, those life forms can be totally disrupted if you drop the wrong kind of sand in their habitat. And also on the grains of sand themselves, there are microscopic organisms, nematodes, all kinds of tiny little critters that play an important role in the food chain. We can't see them, but they're there. Right? And they're little things that get eaten by bigger things and so on and so on and so on. And when you bring in sand, what often happens is they dig up sand from an inland mine. For instance, in Miami, since they've run out of ocean sand, they now dig up sand from uh, terrestrial mines from way deep inside of Florida. They dig up sand from a big hole in the ground, truck it out to the coast and dump it on, on the ground. But that sand, the, the life forms on those grains are very different than the ones that are on the coast coastal sand, and it can actually, there's some research indicating that that kind of beach nourishment can annihilate those microscopic life forms, which can have a real impact on the whole food chain in the area. Yeah, it's got to really be done carefully. I think we're, we're just starting to realize all of the issues around our manipulation of the coast, our manipulation of any place where we go. We tend to come in fairly heavy-handed and just muck around and then recognize that Things weren't really the way they used to be when we first started mucking around and don't understand why. Absolutely. And with sand, it's, it's just one of those many facets that um, we're, we're being kind of um, oblivious to our effects. So part of what your story is that we're running out of sand, whether it's for beach nourishment or for silica chips or construction or anything else. It's not that the last grain of sand is going to be gone, it's, but it's becoming far more costly. So what do you see as some of the opportunities we have to better use the sand we have left available to us? So it's two, uh, kind of two levels of answer to that. So one is, you know, just how can we use, how can we use less or better use the sand that we have? So, uh, uh, there are a lot of people um, working on uh, different sort of technological approaches to it, looking at ways to make concrete uh, that uses less sand or that uses other, other uh, materials besides sand, like shredded plastic or bamboo, all these different kind of things. Um, there's a lot of research going on around that, which is all to the good. There's research going on into how to make concrete that lasts much longer or even that heals itself, that when the concrete cracks, it actually can literally fix its own cracks so that it lasts longer and you don't have to replace it as often. Um, there's a certain amount of concrete recycling that we're doing, uh, which we could be doing more of, and that's slowly growing. Um, and all those things, I think, are to the good. We should definitely support them. But at the end of the day, I think the real answer is actually to reframe the question. The question should not be, how can we use less sand? It should be, like, this question sounds really familiar, right? You hear that we're running out of sand. Well, we know we're running out of fresh water, cutting down too many trees, we're harvesting too many fish out of the oceans. And now come to find out we're running out of sand, which is the most abundant thing on the planet. Well, these are not separate problems. They are all symptoms of the same problem. 
which is simply that we are just consuming too much. The way that we live in the, in the rich world, we are simply using too many resources. There just aren't enough natural resources on the planet for all seven billion of us to continue living this way. Especially because there's seven billion of us now, we're well on our way to having to hitting a population of nine billion people. There just isn't enough stuff on the planet for all of us to live the way that we live here in the United States. We have got to find ways to live our lives and to build our cities in ways that consume less, in ways that are more sustainable. One of the, one of the ways that we can at least uh, mitigate the damage that's being done by sand mining right now is just good old fashioned regulations, you know, pass laws saying, you know, how, where you can mine sand, how much of it you can mine, you know, over what period of time, that sort of thing. Those kind of laws in many places don't exist at all, for starters. Um, and often where they do exist in places like India, just nobody pays attention because there's so much corruption in the system. So that is, is definitely something that's it's just starting to get sort of more attention on the international stage, like some of the big environmental organizations like the World Wildlife Fund are starting to pay attention to it. Um, in Western Europe, for instance, they have pretty much banned river sand mining. Right, where you just send a dredge out onto a river and drop a pipe down to the bottom of the river and suck up the whole riverbed. They finally, about in the 1970s, they realized this was a terrible idea and they pretty much banned it in France, in Italy, and most of Western Europe. We Starting in the 1970s? Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's sort of really early yeah, recognition well, of that damage. Well, I, I think it probably gives you an idea of how severe the damage was. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, that's know? true. Now, in most of the United States, we still do that. Right. Right? So that's... And the thing is, like I said, there's... In many jurisdictions, there just aren't even any rules because it... You know, for most of human history, we just thought, well, sand, it's everywhere. Who cares? Help yourself. Take as much as you want. So in Texas, for instance, the state of Texas had no rules about sand mining at all until 2011. Okay. <laughs> in California, we used to mine, uh, mine sand from beaches right up until the 1980s. We had a whole series of sand mines, you know, where you would just have giant machinery hauling tons of sand right off the beaches to be turned into, you know, shopping malls and sidewalks that finally got phased out only in the 1980s because of all the environmental damage it was doing. But there's still one sand mine left in this state. We're cutting it off. It's ending yes. next year. Yes, yes, exactly. It's finally going to be shut down next year. But as of this moment, it's still going on. And listen, the fact that it's still going on in 2019 is kind of mind-blowing to me. Oh, it is. But yeah. I mean, so at least, you know, that's progress, right? Like we used to just basically strip mine beaches up and down the coast. Now we're getting, finally getting rid of the very last uh, uh, beach sand mine. Yeah. And like I say, here and there, people are starting to realize like things like damming rivers is not such a great idea. There's some real big costs with that. And, um, and, um, there's my brother. Sorry. <laughs> it's really good television. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, oh well. Your, your editor's going to have his work cut out for him. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to it five times and tell him where to cut. 
no, no, that's okay. Uh, just don't say anything. Just say don't brilliant. Don't make any faces. Clap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why him? I'm stuck with. Oh, so this is your brother. That's my brother. Yeah. Oh. Don't spread it around. Yeah. Okay. I try not to. So all the study you've done on sand and such, I have to bring this back to beaches yet again. Sure. Do you have a favorite beach that you like to go to? Well, I love the beach. Who doesn't love beaches, you know? Um, but I tell you, you know, having done all this research, I look at beaches very, very differently now. Um, you know, just knowing what an artificial construct most of them are, right? I mean, so many of the most famous beaches in the world, are, like I said, are completely man-made. Waikiki, Miami Beach, uh, you know, half the beaches in Southern California where I live, you know, we think of them as, oh, these beautiful natural places, you know, where the land meets the sea. They're not that at all. They're, you know, they're consciously created profit centers. And um, once you've really stuck your head into that reality, it's a little hard to, to come back from. But another thing that I thought that really, that I had no idea about before I started doing the research for the book was this whole idea of the beach as paradise, as like the place that everybody wants to go. That's a very new idea. Right. For most of human history, people thought of the beach, it was like a dangerous and kind of scary place, right? Because that's where the sea was. That's where the storms hit, you know? And beaches were often kind of smelly and ugly. It's where all seaweed would wash up and the dead fish would wash up. There were places like where the fishermen would launch their boats from and then come back and clean their catch. Like, nobody wanted to live there. Anybody with any sense wanted to build their house inland far away from the waves and the storms. And it's only really within about the last hundred years through sort of a combination of, of marketing and uh, technological progress that people kind of latched onto this idea of like, oh, the beach, oh, that's, I want to live right next to the ocean. It's a very new concept. And now, of course, as climate change is really kicking in, we're really starting to find out that that was a terrible idea. That is a catastrophic mistake to have built, you know, countless billions of dollars worth of homes and hotels and developments right next to the shore, right? That was an idea that like our ancestors going back, you know, thousands of years knew that's a terrible idea. Don't build your house right next to the ocean. But we somehow forgot and we are going to pay a very heavy price for that. I'm afraid you're right. I think we're starting to see it already. Um, a lot of places are finding that even fairly affluent coastal communities are finding some of their real estate values are going down. It's not a, it's not going to be a good picture going into the future, especially with the climate change, exactly. rising sea level issues we've got coming before us. Exactly. And that's actually one of the things that's really driven the beach nourishment issue, uh, industry. I mean, beach nourishment mm -hmm. is a multi-billion dollar industry. It is. And it started as mostly just like, oh, let's keep the beaches looking nice for the tourists. But more and more, it's being done as a defense against climate change, against sea level rise, and against storms. Because people finally realize, like, oh, you know, we need a nice beach or some dunes to block those waves, to block the wind that's coming in. It really, uh, you know, can really blunt the impact of uh, storms and of course of sea level rise, right? If you've got 20 yards of beach between you and your house, that's much better than having those waves right underneath your house. But at the end of the day, 
we can't just keep on building beaches forever. No, we can't. So, in reading your book, I think your writing is great. I really like your writing style. I like the way you kind of go through, you don't just say, here's the problem today, but you go through sort of the history, the geology of an area. It's sort of Mitchner-esque, perhaps showing my, my generational reading influences. I'll take that. I'll okay. take that. Thank you. Who do you feel like are the writers that you feel most influenced by? What, what coastal books at all are you reading, if any? Books that I've that I've read that made a real impact. Well, uh, there's a there's a researcher named Oren Pilkey, right? Who uh, I'm told is a lovely human being. Um, he's written he's done a lot of research about the impacts of beach nourishment and about beach erosion and the damages that those cause. And he's also written two or three books uh, about it, all of which I read, researching my own book, and I thought were very, really well done, like very accessible, very readable, and very. You know, he, he's really one of the people who really turned me on to the, the history of the beaches, this idea that, you know, really for most of human history, people actually avoided the beach, right. yeah. which I, was a complete eye-opener to me. Um, and then, of course, Rachel Carson, who's most famous for Silent Spring, uh, also uh, has uh, one or two very beautiful books about... The, the sea around us. The sea around us, exactly, yeah. So, um, so those, for that... The chapter that's about beach nourishment and beach erosion, those are definitely uh, some of the go-tos. And then, what are you working on now? So, um, I'm right now, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a magazine journalist, primarily. Um, I'm working on a couple of different magazine stories that have absolutely nothing to do with sand. Oh, so sorry for you. Well, there's only, I feel like I've kind of said what I want to say about sand, you okay. know? Um, but, uh, Listen, if any of your listeners have any great ideas, I'm, I'm looking for the next book. I'm very, there's a lot of really interesting resource issues and, um, you know, sort of how climate change is, 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 is affecting all of us and how measures that, are, that uh, different areas are taking to, uh, to address climate change or to adapt to climate change. I'm very interested in that stuff. I'm looking into a lot of that stuff. But I'm looking for the next big thing. So uh, if anybody's got any great ideas out there. Let me know. Okay. Well, I mean, I know the, the whole Earth X is kind of a hot issue right now of the ways that we can better use energy and the whole idea of maybe how we use our, our Earth more sustainably. Those are areas you can get to, but maybe yep. some of our listeners will come up with other ideas for you. All right. But it's been wonderful talking with you, Vince. And I hope that the, the world in a grain becomes a bestseller, continues to be a bestseller. It's, to me, it was a fascinating read. I thought it was just really enlightening. And I came to the subject as a coastal engineer, as someone who knows, um, thought she knew a lot about the coast. And yet, I was just fascinated by all this learning. So, well, thank you so much for thank making you. it Thank you. I can imagine no higher praise.